Well, good morning, everybody. That's the first time I've had walk-up music. I would have chosen a different one, but <laughs> Wes, thank you for that. Um, so this morning, we're going to continue on in our series in Hebrews, uh, and we have a lot to look at this morning, like a lot, all of chapter one and two. Um, so I'm going to go quickly, and I'm going to cover a lot in order to get it all in. Um, so I'd invite you guys to keep up, and uh, I'm going to pray for us. And uh, then we'll go from there. God, thank you for the opportunity uh, to be together this morning as a family, a family joined together because of Christ. God, thank you for the way in which Jesus has uh, provided a way for us to be connected to you and to one another. And God, this morning as we're in this place together, um, I pray that you would help us to hear exactly what it is you would have us hear, that you would speak to our hearts and minds, that we'd be drawn close to you. Holy Father, I recognize that what I have to say is of little importance, but God, what you would say is of utmost importance, and so I pray that we would hear from you, and I pray that you would use me simply as an instrument of your love and mercy, an instrument of the gospel. You would be honored and glorified, and Jesus would be lifted high. God, we ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Has there ever been a time in your life when you felt ready to just give up. In moments of suffering or difficulty or stress or darkness, have you ever been ready to walk away from your faith, from God, and just figure out how to do it all on your own? If you had a season in your life where you thought that if God was truly good and God truly knew what he was doing, Why would I be where I am? Why would he allow me to be in this place of suffering and doubt and darkness and confusion and difficulty? Maybe you can relate to that experience when you're full of doubt and you're trusting your doubts and it's hard to trust Jesus. I think it's a fairly common human experience to find ourselves in that place at some point. A lot of times our life just doesn't look like we expected it to. And when we signed up to follow Jesus, we probably thought things were going to be different. And what is it that we do when we find ourselves in these places, this place of darkness and doubt and unwanted difficulties and unexpected suffering? What do we do? We begin to tell ourselves a story. We begin to preach to ourselves some sort of gospel, whether it's good news or not. One person has said that in these moments of darkness and confusion, we become theologians and philosophers and psychologists and archaeologists, and we begin to dig through our hearts and minds to try to make sense of where we find ourselves. And sometimes, just maybe, we decide to appoint ourselves as the fourth member of the Trinity standing in judgment of God and saying, maybe God's way just isn't enough for me. Maybe I know what's best. God doesn't. And maybe it's time for me to give up on all of this and just do it on my own. There's some things we don't know about the book of Hebrews. We don't really know who the author is. Ben talked about that last week. There are a lot of theories as to who it might be. Some of them are very compelling, but those theories are just best guesses. We don't really know the exact audience it was intended for originally, even though a lot of people believe it was 
uh, for a Jewish Christian community in Rome. But one thing that does show up in Hebrews over and over and over is a call to persevere, a call to hang in there. And it's a call to persevere because Jesus is better. It's a call to hang in there because Jesus is better than everything else. We, we know this about the audience's situation. Uh, it can be inferred throughout the book because we see places like this in chapter 13 where they are told to remember those who are in prison, who are mistreated. There are other places where they are commended for their endurance under persecution, for their compassion on those who are in prison, and for having joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. They're in a bad situation. And in the midst of all that, the author repeatedly calls the hearers, the listeners of this sermon, of this letter, to persevere in their faith. And he cautions them about the danger of leaving the Christian community. It's a call to hang in there because Jesus is better. My point in that is this. The book of Hebrews was intended to be heard by an audience that is right there on the edge. So often what we see with New Testament books is that they have an intended purpose, an intended audience. They are written for a specific situation, and sometimes we look at them and forget to look at the bigger, bigger picture of why that letter was originally written or why that sermon was originally preached. But Hebrews, specifically, probably for a group of people in the midst of persecution and who have far worse times ahead of them, a group of people who have every incentive to give up and walk away, a group of people who need to be encouraged and exhorted with the truth that Jesus is better. That understanding of the purpose of Hebrews is important at every step along the way through this book, including what we're going to dive into this morning. All the way through Hebrews, the author is constantly making this argument, this grand uh, Christological argument that Jesus is better. There's this huge theology of Christ that runs throughout the book of Hebrews. But every step along the way, the reason the author is doing that is to say, Jesus is better. That's the whole point of the book. Jesus is amazing. Jesus is better. So hang in there. Like I said a minute ago, we're actually going to look at a lot today. Chapters 1 and 2, we'll take them in smaller bites along the way. But I think it's important to see what the author is doing here in these two chapters together in order to fully see the call to hang in there. We're not going to have time this morning to deal with everything we see, to zoom in verse by verse, to look at all the specific words used and the Old Testament references that are made, which are many. Sometimes, too, when we just lean into the small things in these chapters, we maybe miss the overall uh, message and the overall point, which is kind of what I want to highlight, the overall point. I want us to grasp what the author is getting at. Overall, in the first two chapters of Hebrews, there are three basic movements that the author goes through. In chapter 1, starting in verse 5 and going to uh, chapter 2, verse 4, the author is making this argument that Jesus is superior to the angels. There's a reason for that, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But he, he makes the argument that Jesus is superior to the angels. 
Then in verse 5 through 9, the author quotes from the Old Testament, references some places in the Old Testament, in order to make the point that for a while, Jesus became positionally lower than the angels in order to connect heaven and earth, in order to connect God and man. And then at the end of chapter 2, in verses 10 through 18, um, he talks about um, that Jesus' lower position was ultimately so that Jesus could defeat our greatest enemies and become our representative before God. He sort of introduces the idea at that point that Jesus is a great high priest that much of the rest of the book of Hebrews is about. But let's start with the verses in chapter 1, and we'll move from there. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. And I'll read them for us. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he said, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? There are two quick things I want to uh, highlight about this passage before I briefly outline what happens there in chapter 1. But first, the author of Hebrews displays an extensive knowledge of the Old Testament. We see that right here in chapter 1 where references are made to several Old Testament passages. Throughout the book of Hebrews, there's like 35 or 36 different quotations from the Old Testament and about just as many allusions to different places in the Old Testament. It's covered up with the Old Testament. And specifically here in chapter 1, when the author is stringing together these quotes, he is quoting from a a Greek translation of the Old Testament that was used heavily in first century Jewish places of worship and study, the synagogues. The author probably didn't have permanent access to a bunch of these scrolls. We don't know that for sure but he probably had memorized much of what he's writing and saying here. And my point being, this person, this author, whoever it is, knows a lot about the Old Testament. And second, the author of Hebrews repeatedly uses rhetorical devices throughout the book to make some sort of point. And what I mean by that statement is this. The author is using well-known rhetorical uh, devices um, of the day to build these strong arguments that ultimately he's using to persuade people to action, to some sort of, um, to take some sort of action or, or to move in a certain direction or, or like I said earlier, to hang in there. We may not immediately recognize those rhetorical devices because of the cultural differences from us to the author, different time, different place, but that's what's happening here. It's happening all throughout chapter one already. 
right, the stringing together of multiple Old Testament passages to make a point, that's one of those rhetorical devices to build his strong argument. What comes next at the beginning of chapter 2 is the reason he's building all those um, or, or um, lining up all those Old Testament passages one after the other in succession. Right? The beginning of chapter 2 is the action part for what he's saying in chapter 1. We'll get there. But for now, as far as an outline of these verses to see what argument the author is making, it's this. He makes three basic arguments in chapter 1. Jesus is superior to the angels in his relationship to the Father. That's the first argument. You see it right there in uh, chapter five. I mean, in verse 5 and 6. He's the Son of God, and God is his Father. The angels don't, sort of, the angels don't have that sort of connection to God that Jesus has. In the bigger picture of Scripture, we know this to mean that Jesus is part of the Trinity. In verse 6, Jesus is called the firstborn into the world, and the angels are called to worship him. We see that same sort of terminology, that firstborn terminology used for Jesus throughout the New Testament. Jesus' early followers called Jesus the firstborn among creation, seeing him as the ultimate heir in the family of God. We see this more in chapter 2, but part of what that means is that we as Jesus' followers, we share in the great inheritance of God that is Jesus's. The New Testament equates the image of God with being the firstborn of creation, a role that's fulfilled by Jesus, but one that humanity is called to live out as well. All humans, all of us, because of our uh, responsibility to bear God's image, are meant to live as firstborn heirs over creation. Secondly, the author makes an argument that Jesus is superior to the angels in their relationship to him, uh, specifically in verses uh, six, uh, the angels are called to worship him, and some of the rest of the talk throughout this section is about how the angels are there to serve him. Thirdly, uh, the author makes the argument that Jesus is superior to the angels in Jesus's relationship to all of creation. Verses eight through fourteen have a lot to say about Jesus ruling God's kingdom, about Jesus being anointed to do so, about Jesus being the creator of all things, and about Jesus currently and forever ruling at God's right hand. There's so much there. There's so much that you could take and just dive into in that, uh, those concepts alone that I just mentioned. But the overall point of chapter 1 is that the author is making the argument that Jesus is superior to the angels. But why all this talk about angel, right? And why all these Old Testament verses strung together to make a point? It all boils down to this. It was common Jewish thought at this time that angels were the mediators of God's covenants in the Old Testament. That the angels delivered the covenant to Moses. Remember, the author is probably writing to a uh, predominantly Jewish Christian audience, hence the name of the book Hebrews. But this idea that uh, Jesus, this idea that the angels were the mediators of God's covenant in the Old Testament, that's based off some verses in Deuteronomy and the way they were interpreted. And so all this talk of angels isn't necessarily because this church is overly focused on angels or anything. It was because of the argument he's building to in verses two, I mean in chapter two, verses one through four. Let me read it. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, 
lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Essentially, what the author is saying here, what the preacher is saying here, I think, is that because Jesus is superior to the angels, the words of Jesus, the message of Jesus, is superior to the former message of the angels. The beings who are literally the messengers of God. Right? In essence, throughout uh, chapter 1, going into verse 2 here, I mean, in chapter 2 here, the preacher has made a rhetorical argument from the lesser to the greater. The message of the angels was good, but Jesus' message is better. So hold fast to Jesus' message. Don't let it go. In verse 2, he talks about how those people who didn't hold fast to the Old Testament message... um, Well, they suffered greatly for their disobedience to God's covenant. And in verse 3, he goes in to say, how much worse will it be for you if you don't hold fast to the message of Jesus? And those are really sort of strong, kind of shocking, kind of in-your-face words that that's where he goes. right? If he's wanting them to hold fast to Jesus, why is he making this argument about retribution and not escaping it? They let go of Jesus. Once again, the author is intentionally using these sorts of devices to shock the audience, to get their attention, to make them wake up, to help them see what's at stake. Because ultimately, the message that the author is building to here is not one of fire and brimstone. The ultimate message here is that Jesus is better in so many ways. The gospel is better than the old ways. The application for us here, for you and I, is straightforward. Even when we want to walk away from it all, there is nothing else as good as Jesus. Like one of the disciples said, where else can we go? Where else can we go that is this good? If this audience is right there on the edge, suffering under the weight of persecution, in the midst of darkness and sorrow, some of the worst times of their life, the author is making the argument that even under that suffering and darkness, Jesus is better. Where else can you go that is this good? Where else can you go that is good as Jesus? The rest of chapter 2 serves to make the argument that Jesus is better, that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is awesome. So with that said, let's look at chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Remember in these first two chapters, these verses here, 5 through 9, are the second movement where the preacher moves from just talking about Jesus being superior to the angels to he gets to the point where he talks about how the preacher um, is making the argument that Jesus became positionally lower than the angels, angels for a time in order to connect heaven and earth, God and man. Hebrews 2 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, 
of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Just a couple of things to note. To start with, the preacher is referring um, directly back to Psalm 8 in this passage, and he also references or alludes Psalm 110 as well in this section of verses. Psalm 8 uh, is, is directly referenced when, when he says this, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. I think upon initially reading that, if we're not reading it in the larger context of what's happening in Hebrews chapter 1 and 2, it would be easy to make the mistake of thinking that the preacher here is referring to to me and you because he uses man over and over. We might also make that mistake if we're looking at this passage in Psalm 8 directly. But here, the author is interpreting Psalm 8 Christologically in light of Jesus. The whole movement of Hebrews is about Jesus, right? And so Jesus for a little while was made lower than the angels. Jesus for a little while was made lower so that as a human, he could connect God and man, heaven and earth, so that God could connect with humanity, right? So that Jesus being fully human and fully God could bring about the great reversal, redeeming all things. Redeeming God's people and God's creation and inviting God's people into his role as the firstborn of all creation, the ruler of God's kingdom. Remember that Hebrews is all about a call to not walk away. It's a call to cling to Jesus, to hang in there. So part of what the author is doing and saying here is that all things have already been submitted to Christ. It may not seem like it in the moment, but all things have already been submitted to Christ. That present reality of Christ reigning supremely, we're not seeing it like we will one day. It has not been fully realized. It's coming. It may not feel like it in the moment. But Christ's example of suffering so that he could win that great victory serves as the foundation for their endurance under suffering. Right, Christ suffered greatly. Christ bore up under that suffering in order to win this great reversal. And so this author is saying, like Jesus did, like like Jesus bore up under that suffering in order to redeem all things, to redeem God's people and God's creation, you too can stand up under that suffering because of Jesus. Because of Christ, you too can endure you too can hang in there. The overall emphasis here is that Jesus became like them, like us, in the flesh. Jesus knows what it means to be human and suffer. suffer. Because for a little while, he was made lower than the angels, 
made to walk in the flesh like me and you. Literally, the man of all sorrows. And he endured, and he suffered, and he won a great victory for God's people. The thing to see here, the application for you and I is this. Jesus understands your struggles and your suffering and your darkness and your temptations and your confusion and everything else about what it means to be human. Because he was there. Because he was here. That means that our Savior who tasted death like you and I one day will, he can relate to us. He has connected with us. And we too can endure under the suffering. We too can hold fast because the man of all sorrows has not forgotten ours. He has tasted them as well. This idea that Jesus is presently ruling in heaven and has redeemed all things and knowing what it means to suffer, knowing those two things together, though, might create this dilemma in our heart where we say, if Jesus is reigning and he knows what it's like to suffer, then why isn't he doing something about my suffering? That's a relatable question, right? The silence of God is a hard place to live. But sometimes that question betrays in us that our goal is often to feel better rather than to find God in our suffering. I get it. I, too, want to feel better. I have no desire to suffer. But when I do, when we do, we have a Savior that has been right there with us, right where we are, a Savior who will meet us in that suffering. So the author is continuing to call us to hang in there because Jesus is better. All right, we'll move to the final grouping of verses. Um, I'm going to read just verses 14 through 18 for the sake of time, but I want us to keep in mind that the point of verses 10 through 18 as a whole is this. Jesus' lower position was so that he could defeat our greatest enemies and become our representative before God. Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely, it is not an, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." The passage that I just read is to borrow some language, nutritionally dense. We could spend weeks and months unpacking those five verses. These thoughts and words are so rich, we could mine them for months on end and never run out of material to dig through and uncover. But what I want to do this morning, what we're doing in this series, is we're looking at why Jesus is better, what makes Jesus better, why we should hang on because he is better. 
in this section of verses, we see the greatness of Jesus in the way that he defeated death through death. The way that he became incarnate in the flesh, like us in every way. How he delivers his people from lifelong slavery to sin and death. How all of this was for his brothers and sisters and not for the angels. We see here in this passage how he atoned for our sins before God and how he continues to be our perfect representative before God so that Jesus is our mediator to God, standing in the gap for us. It's not that angels who are any longer mediating God's covenant with mankind. It's Jesus himself, God's Son, a member of the Trinity, is acting on our behalf. For these people who are hearing this message, these Jewish believers, perhaps they were tempted to walk away from Jesus and maybe tempted to go back to their old ways of religion. But what they are being told here is that Jesus is better than all of that. Jesus, God's Son, the firstborn of creation, defeated our greatest enemy and has acted mercifully on our behalf. There's nothing better than Jesus. Right from this passage, we should see that we cannot even begin to fathom the compassion of Jesus. Part of what we see here is that Jesus chose to become human on our behalf. He didn't have to do that. The Lord Jesus did not have to undergo what he underwent, but he chose to do that on our behalf. And that should have radical implications for us, for our trust in him. If, Joseph, if Jesus chose to do what he did, knowing every step of the way where it was going to lead for him, then we can surely trust him to be better than anything else. Our call this morning is simple. It's to come to Jesus because Jesus is better. Wherever you're trying to go instead, wherever you think you're going to find a better way, I don't mean another religion. I mean wherever you're trying to go in your own power, in your own ways, turn and come to Jesus instead. Part of what we see in this passage is that Jesus is better because he has a greater message of grace than any angel ever had. Jesus is better because he knows what it's like to live in our skin. Jesus is better because he died to destroy sin and death and then arose in victory. Jesus is better because...